0: Thank you, Kathy, and thank you, Reuben. Good evening, and whether you're a regular here or you rarely set foot inside a church, I hope you feel... As a junior doctor, you're always taught, first things first, introduce yourself. Because unfortunately, in the busyness, formalities can fall by the wayside. That would never happen to me, though. Recently, I was at a particularly hectic clinic. I I brought this wee lady in, uh, said my name, and figured out her expectations. Her case was complex. I, I spent probably the guts of an hour listening to symptoms, explaining scan findings, diagnosis, treatment options. As the patient was getting up to leave, she thanked me, but then asked a startling question. Are you planning on becoming a doctor then? I couldn't believe it. What did she think I spent the past hour doing other than being a doctor? But it was my fault. I never introduced myself as a doctor. The evidence was certainly there to suggest who I was. But because the introduction wasn't, she completely missed the point. She could have been away home thinking, that was all very good. But I really would have preferred to have seen a professional. This evening, our title is Introducing Jesus from Matthew 3. But come on, Matthew, let's just skip to the good bits, uh, the, the signs, the moral teachings. But no, introductions are essential. Whether you're starting out investigating who Jesus is, or you've been a follower for decades, all of us need introduced to Jesus again. You can know the stories, know about the cross, see the evidence for who Jesus is, but still completely miss the point. Skip his introduction, miss the blueprint for who he is, and you're just like my patient on our way home. So what's Matthew's aim? His gospel is written with Jews in mind. Matthew is not the first gospel written, but we find it at the start of the New Testament because of its unmistakable links back to the Jewish scriptures. He quotes from these over 60 times, always to emphasize that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Last week, Tim walked us through the first two chapters Whereas Luke opens his gospel by tracing Jesus's humanity all the way back to Adam, Matthew's more concerned about showing Jesus Jewish, kingly heritage through Abraham and King David. In Matthew two prophecies of a new ruler and rumors of the newborn King terrify the paranoid Herod. Two kingdoms collide as opposition from the rival kingdom of this world is manifest in murder. Do you see that the big idea of Matthew already is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King? Matthew obsessively wants to introduce us to Jesus, the King of Israel. My big question for you tonight is this. Have you been introduced to Jesus as the great King and Son of God? as an eyewitness to his glory, bringing events into focus through the lens of the Old Testament. Matthew says that the rescuer, the Messiah of promise is the Jesus of history. Do you believe that this evening? Do you live like Jesus is king? Tonight I'm suggesting we divide the narrative into two scenes. Scene one, Introducing Jesus, the great king who requires our repentance, verses 1 to 12. And then scene 2, introducing Jesus, the beloved son of God, who makes us right with our heavenly father, verses 13 to 17. So firstly, introducing Jesus, the great king who requires our repentance. And to help us unpack this, I'm proposing we use six short questions, the five W's and one H much to the dismay of school teachers everywhere. So question one, who introduces Jesus? John, Jesus' second cousin, born into the priestly line to, to elderly Zachariah and Elizabeth, was remarkable. At six months gestation, John jumped for joy at the arrival of the embryonic king of the universe in Mary's womb. John always bears witness to Jesus as Lord. The angel Gabriel addressing Zechariah with the last verses of the Old Testament says John is sent in the spirit and power of Elijah to go before God himself. Look at verse four. John's clothing wouldn't have got him under the front cover of Palestinian vogue. Neither would his food choices have got him under the great Judean bake-off. He's a prophet of old, an Elijah. And like Elijah, John will become known for his stand for God in the rule of a ruthless monarch, and in the face of idolatry. Question two, where is Jesus introduced to the world? As foretold by Isaiah, John sets up base in the wilderness, the Judean desert to the west of the Dead Sea. A full day's journey from the kingly city of Jerusalem. A strange place to announce the arrival of a king. But this is perfectly in keeping With the ways of the same God who chose to be born in an animal's feeding trough. God, through the unconventional person of John and the barren setting of a desert, chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise so that none of us can boast. Only God could have brought eternal significance out of such obscurity. Question three When is the message of John declared? John is before Jesus. Verse 3, preparing the way of the Lord, making his path straight. This prophecy of Isaiah from 700 years earlier goes on to say, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Potholes. Potholes. Aren't they shocking? On the off chance there's any representatives here from the Department for Infrastructure, come on. Back in my romantic days, and by that I mean a few months ago before I got married, Belfast to Downpatrick via Ballygown was a regular route. The further out you get towards the outer edges of civilization, or home as Rachel used to call it, the more likely you are to come across these mammoth potholes. Not only that, but dips and cambers, climbs, mounds of earth, chaos. These obstacles slowed me down or even caused me to take an alternative route. But one day you see it. Resurfacing works, works Ballygown Road next eight weeks. I have to admit, I don't celebrate such an announcement. That's because resurfacing causes disruption. But what it means is that one glorious day, sweet, sweet bliss for my wee car, it's poor suspension, my weary bones, my journey time, because the road is smooth as silk. Well, for a week or two anyway, until they dig it up again. So what? Well, potholes aren't just a modern problem. In ancient times, monarchs dispatched heralds to announce the way, but also to clear the way. Pioneers opened passes, straightened crooked roads, levelled hills, filled potholes. They built a highway for the king to allow unimpeded access to the city. This is John's rule, both then and still now, through God's enduring word. When is his ministry? It's before Jesus, because it's a preparation for him. The Messiah King is coming. Are you ready? What obstacles in your life are in the way of the king? Perhaps the claims of the king all seem a bit much. Worthy of my whole life? Really? Is your ease an obstacle? Would you follow the truth wherever he leads? If you know the king already, what needs leveled? An ugly jealousy, a mountain of pride? I just can't stand them. I just can't look past what they did. Have potholes of apathy developed? It's just a bit awkward going over there saying hello there, but they're a bit weird. I'm comfortable here. Has your spiritual life fallen into disrepair? Are subtle sins impeding the advance of the king in your life? Roadworks always cause disruption, but remember where resources for changing the landscape would have come from, the king. So that's when the message of John came, it was before Jesus. Question four, what is the message of John? What prepares the way for the Lord in us? Verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance, a word loaded with bad connotations. But what will be the first word of Jesus's ministry in Matthew's gospel? How about the first word of instruction to his disciples after his resurrection? You guessed it. Repentance is foundational to everything Jesus the King is about. It's not, it's not a one-off either. It's an ongoing process of preparation and road upkeep to allow Jesus to advance in us. Maybe you think repentance, repentance is just something we do to reach a neutral state from which we can assess our options clean up your act a bit, then maybe follow Jesus, maybe not. What is repentance? It's not just feeling sorry for wrong. There is a godly grief that produces repentance, but repentance is not merely feeling sorry. It is obedience to the command to turn around and head a different direction. It's a doing word. Is repentance something we must do before we can come to God then? Yes and no. Repentance is necessary to come to God, but repentance does not describe something we do before we come to God. Repentance is what coming to God is. Imagine you're in Lurgan. Traumatic, but go with it. Apologies, apologies to anyone from Lurgan. You're supposed to be at a friend's in Belfast for dinner. Somehow in a days you've ended up in Lurgan. Your friend calls, Where are you at? Come to Belfast, I've got this delicious spread ready for you. What do you do? It's obvious, isn't it? You turn around, 180 degrees, back onto the M1 and come to Belfast. Regret apologising for being in Lurgan, that in itself isn't going to get you to Belfast. Maybe you stop heading in the wrong direction, three-point turn and then park up. Sorted. No, that's ridiculous. You must leave Lurgan and come to Belfast. Repentance is turning around and going to the correct destination. It's not just feeling something. John is calling here for us to come to the kingdom of heaven. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Repentance is not turning a new leaf, getting rid of some bad stuff and then assessing your options. No, Deep down, we all know we need something much more radical than that. Turn from sin to King Jesus. Be fully invested in his kingdom values of dependence, humility, love. Joining Jesus' kingdom is a complete 180 from the hypocrisy and violence of the rival kingdom still operational today. You can't have a foot in both camps. You're either in Belfast or you're in Lurgan, not both, not even a bit. Which kingdom do you belong to? So that's what the message is, it's repentance. Question five, how should we respond to John's message? John the Baptist is so named because he uses ceremonial washing, previously for non-Jews, for Gentiles, converting to Judaism and he uses it to demonstrate what it means to repent. Don't let the shock factor be lost on you. Jews, Abraham's descendants, saw themselves as the favored race. They thought God's judgment was only for ungodly Gentiles because Abraham's merits were sufficient for all his children. But Jews were getting baptized just like Gentiles. When lineage was everything, this said actually we, despite the privileges of being God's people, are as far from God as any Gentile. This was incredible. Through baptism, they demonstrated repentance. Self-righteousness was washed off. Lies were turned towards the coming king, evidenced by real action. This is how we respond to John's message, real action demonstrating real change of direction. Right on cue onto the stage strut the Pharisees and Sadducees, the ruling class of the current kingdom. From John's sharp rebuke, we see there has been no real real turning on their part to the new king. These leaders claim worthiness because of physical lineage being Abraham's family. John says, however, in verse 7, that they belong to the brood, the family of vipers. Their spiritual lineage is of Satan. John is not too harsh here. The fruit that the religious leaders bear is rotten because in their actions they will reject the rule of the heavenly king and bay for blood. Are the Pharisees just 2D pantomime villains we boo every time they step onto the stage? How were they not prepared for the king whom they knew better than most had been promised? In a word, pride. Blinded by self-reliance and status, they they did not see that the foundational step into the kingdom was humble repentance. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Humility is accepting reality after all. The Pharisees did have nothing. In verse 9, John points out even their precious ancestry was from God, not from themselves. The religious elite are a sobering case study. Look at the warnings of verse 10 and 12. The king is kind, but refusing his rule is rebellion. The crowds get it because those with least are most likely to realize their need. This is how we respond to the message. Jesus will soon say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How have you responded to the message of repentance? If someone were to ask you, what makes you good enough for heaven? What would you say? What do you think? If you answer that question in the first person, you've already gone completely wrong. I, I do this, I don't do that. No. What makes me good enough? Nothing. Nothing in me, him. Only the King can bring us into the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize your need? Have you declared spiritual bankruptcy? Does your life, verse 8, bear real fruit, real action in keeping with repentance? Good works do not attain salvation, but if there has already been real change in the root system, this will be evident in good fruit. Are your roots, and and by that I mean is your identity, your, your dependence in Christ? If not, in clear parallels with Psalm 1, we are useless chaff. Bad fruit that withers and dies, cut off from life. Such wasted existence has chosen the baptism of fire forever in hell. Are you reliant on yourself or on King Jesus? The only entry requirement to his kingdom is nothing. You need only need. I wonder what we have Abraham as our father translates to for us today. I have science and reason as my father. Well, can everything really be explained by Adams? I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as them. I've I've never done anything really bad. Do you not know that God is able from these stones to raise up morally average people? Stop elevating yourself above others. Don't believe the lie of our culture that you are enough. What if you're not? I've grown up in a Christian family, always come to church, surely I must be part of the kingdom. We have traditions as our father, of course we do it this way. In what ways is pride an obstacle in your life to the advance of the king? So that's how we should respond to the call for repentance, need and real action evidencing real change our final question of the six is this why repent why turn the kingdom is no distant prophetic expectation it's near Jesus was waiting in the wings for the very next scene as the king arrives don't be found living contrary to his heart why does John think we should turn to the king it's because of his greatness John testifies to the superiority of Christ compared even to his ministry. Captivated by the greatness of King Jesus, verse 11, John is not even worthy of the lowest servant's job. Carrying Jesus' dusty sandals. The irony is the greatness of King Jesus is most fully seen in just how low he did stoop. He did choose the path of a servant. He did wash The disciples dusty feet do you realize that Jesus is greater than anything are you not fed up with the the rulers of this world hypocrisy false promises ruthless self-interest we see it in the news regardless of politics or popularity such leaders will always let you down what if there was a greater ruler a better kingdom do you still live by the rules of this worldly kingdom, looking after number one? Are you not tired of the hamster wheel of achievement? The kingdom of heaven is different. Why turn? Well, if you value the values of his kingdom kindness, forgiveness, fairness, sacrifice then you should see the king. Why turn? Because Jesus' baptism is greater. Look at verse 11. John baptised with water for repentance. Jesus baptises into his spirit. Believers' baptism is a vivid picture of this spiritual transformation. Have you ever seen an adult baptism? Is there any part of that person that stays dry? Romans tells us we have been baptised into Christ. Is there any sin that is not covered? Is there any part of our old self that is not made new? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What he has died to, we have died to. What he values, we now value. How he rises from the dead, so will we. In baptism, we identify with him and declare his kingship dominion over every part of us. Why turn to him? He is greater. His baptism is greater. We've thought in some detail about John introducing Jesus as the great king who requires our repentance. But how is this even possible? What makes such a change of direction even imaginable? How can flawed as we are, how can we turn and enter into the perfect kingdom of heaven? Let's move on to our second and much shorter final scene, introducing Jesus, the beloved son who makes us right with our heavenly father. King Jesus finally enters the scene and he is baptized by John. Why? Jesus' baptism is the blueprint for how he makes us right with God, how he brings us not just into the kingdom but into the very family of God. There are two components to this work. Number one, Jesus is baptized to be identified with sinful humanity and number two, Jesus is baptized to be identified to sinful humanity as the beloved son. So first, Jesus is baptized to identify with sinful humanity. John the Baptist is understandably perplexed, verse 14. No way, swap places. John's baptism of repentance is inappropriate for the one John elsewhere calls the spotless Lamb of God. But Jesus being baptized to fulfill all righteousness, in verse 15, that that means that the king is, in a perfect display of the humility which marks his kingdom, identifies himself with sinners. And rather than making Jesus sinful like us, Jesus makes us perfectly right with God, makes us perfectly right with God like he is. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God, but he's also the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God himself, remember, in skin, identifying with you. Think about that for a minute. Do you think of God as far removed from you? What would you have seen that day? A carpenter from despised Nazareth, waiting patiently in the queue. Just another sinner in a long line of them, you might have thought. But no, no. This is Emmanuel, God with us, being numbered with the transgressors, identifying with you. Vitally, though, Jesus is baptised to be identified to sinful humanity as the beloved Son of God. As Jesus comes up from the water, the Gospels testify that the heavens are visibly opened, the Spirit of God rests like a dove on him, and the, the Father speaks. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The son being baptized, identifying with sinners, becoming sin for us. Upon seeing this, the father cannot help but rend the heavens apart to declare his great love for his son through the spirit. He clears up any doubt. Jesus is not another sinner in a long line. The father introduces Jesus to the world as the beloved Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Do you get how outrageous a claim that is? What does it mean? Jesus being God's Son means he is loved and approved by God. The Father is well pleased with the Son, verse 17. Well pleased with his perfect life well pleased with his perfect obedient self-sacrificial eternal person most fully evidenced in his death earthly fatherhood and and sonship give us the faintest glimpse into this indestructible love secondly jesus being god's son means he carries the authority of his father in those days certainly more so than in our culture today a son was seen as a perfect representation of his father one and the same in the same line of business that's why in the parable of the tenants the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son the heir on his behalf if you know the son you know the father if you dishonor the son you dishonor the father thirdly jesus being the son of god means he is the heir Of all things. God is King. Jesus is the kingly Son, the inheritor and ruler. God so loved the Son that he gave him the world. That's Psalm 2 alluded to at Jesus' baptism. You are my Son. I will make the nations your heritage. But this King is unlike anything you've ever known because although God so loved the Son, that he gave him the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus through his death and resurrection blueprinted in his baptism, makes us right with God. Jesus being God's son means God is well pleased to accept his perfect life and sacrificial death as our substitute. Jesus being God's son means he has the authority Of his Father to forgive our sins. We know the Son, so now in him, his Father is our Father. Jesus being God's Son means that as he identifies with us, God the Father delights to be well pleased with us. The perfect Son shares with us the privileges he deserves as heir of all things. He draws us into the very family of God, into a restored relationship with our Creator. And Father, into the type of eternal love of God that even He enjoys. Jesus is God's beloved Son, and so we magnificently are sons and daughters of the Most High. Have you been introduced to Jesus? You have now. Keep reading on. See what is different, what is greater about the kingdom of heaven. Don't stay on the outside. The king himself invites you in. Being known and loved by God as your father is so much greater than anything else. For those of us who do know the king, by prayerful dependence, let's introduce others. Our king is not distant. He went down into the watery grave, but praise God he came up again. He's alive today. He is baptized us into his spirit and so we are empowered for his kingdom building by the same spirit as he was that's us done for tonight introductions are important don't be like my patient now you've been introduced to jesus don't miss the whole point don't go away without realizing who he is Jesus is the great king who requires our repentance. Have you done that? Admitted you need his help, turn to him today. Then keep looking to him. He is the beloved son of God introduced by the father. By his death and resurrection, he makes us right with God. He changes everything. And one day he will return to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Do you belong to him? Trust him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this introduction to your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is the great King. Lord, he has turned the values of this world upside down he is unlike anything or anyone else we could ever know. We thank you for the kindness, fairness and forgiveness that characterise the king and his kingdom. Lord, we confess our sin. We are so often like the Pharisees. We are self-centred and proud, all for show. We have refused your better rule in our lives. Forgive us. Lord, for any here tonight who do not know your son as their king, I pray by the power of your word and your spirit that you would clear away all obstacles. May they turn and see the greatness of the king and respond in action. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your beloved son. Thank you that he lived a perfect life for us. He came with heavenly authority to to take on our sin. Thank you that the Son that the Lord Jesus, the creator of all, he would have the grace to take responsibility for the wrong that I have done. The king would identify with me, a rebel. Thank you, Lord, that because he is the son of God, when we trust him and enter his kingdom, he shares his privileges with us and brings us to you as our father. Help us to never forget your great love. May we introduce others to our great king this week. For it's in his precious and worthy name that we pray. Amen.